0: Well, my name is Tom Nelson, and good morning. Uh, I didn't get to tell you this last week, but uh, I guess there were more than four. Uh, I was actually in sunny Phoenix. I was actually working. Uh, so, um, but uh, nice to have you here, and uh, welcome to Christ Community. We are just delighted here. I hope you feel welcome and you sense the presence of Christ here. Uh, a new year is always a good time, right? Like, new things and new ideas, it's a fun time. And it's a nice day. Um, I'm thinking about grilling this afternoon. I don't know, maybe is that just <laughs> something we should do? Well, I didn't do any grilling growing up in Minnesota this time of year. Um, I grew up in Minnesota. Some of you know that if you're visiting. Uh, maybe you pick up that in my accent. I don't know, but I'm a Minnesota kid. And when you grow up in Minnesota, the land of 10,000 lakes and a gazillion mosquitoes and Garrison Keeler, by the way, um, you understand that there are a lot of fish to catch. If, uh, just take my word for it, if you grow up Minnesotan, you learn to fish. That's just what Minnesotans do. And uh, in Minnesota, the the biggest weekend of the year, the biggest day of the year is not Thanksgiving. It's not even Christmas. It is opening fishing weekend (laughs) in the middle of May. If you've never experienced this, uh, well, it's amazing. You have this mass migration of SUVs and boats and cars coming out of Minneapolis, scooting north to the land of 10,000 lakes. Just imagine this. It's just like the mass migration of the wildebeest in the Serengeti Plains. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) And on the lakes, these pristine lakes in Minnesota, the 10,000, boats are buzzing everywhere. And uh, concerned moms (laughs) or parents um, who want their children to survive opening fishing weekend insist that their children have some tips on boating safety. And I was one of them and did my boating instructions. I'll never forget the gentleman who spoke in a very Scandinavian accent who was my boating instructor for boating safety. And uh, there were several of us young lads there, and he would make a few points and look over his progressive lenses. Uh, He says, young men, two things don't forget. One is never get in a boat without your life jacket. He said, the second thing, don't leave the dock without an anchor in your boat. And then he said something that has stuck with me. I still see him. You know, it's like that. I still see him like he's right there. A boat adrift is a boat heading for danger. Well, that statement has stayed with me. Because most of us who maybe are not fishermen, maybe you are a fisher person, I don't know. but Most of us have been on a boat, right? And uh, when we get out in the middle of the lake and we turn the motor off or whatever, we're lounging in the sun or we're fishing or just hanging out, what happens to a boat? Boats drift. Unless they're firmly anchored. That's just what boats do. And what I learned early on as a Minnesota angler is that the longer you drift, the further you go. And what I've also discovered, as I've lived a little more of life in my own journey and others, is that boats aren't the only thing that drift. People drift too. People drift in their relationships. It's not unusual for me to have a visit by a married couple who's a part of our Leewood campus. Maybe they've been married for a while and they come in to see me about their marriage is hurting. And inevitably, I will hear language like this Pastor Tom, we don't know what happened. Over the years, we've just drifted apart. Relationships drift, but businesses drift too. Often in my conversations with business leaders around the country or business leaders or managers in our congregation, which I often have wonderful conversations about their work and their world and what their cha- challenges are, it doesn't take long when business is going south for me to have a conversation with someone that goes like this. Tom, our organization, our business, in its entrepreneurial phase, started out so well. We knew our core mission, our core values, but something's happened with declining sales and declining energy in our business. We've drifted from our core values and core mission. Relationships drift, businesses drift, Christian organizations drift, and churches drift. And followers of Jesus drift too. Often I have a conversation that goes like this as well Pastor Tom. I don't know what happened to my spiritual life. I decided one Sunday just not to go to church, and before I knew it, I hadn't been to church in months. Or this week I decided not to read my word and, and read the word and pray, and the days have gone by, and busy at school and work, and you know, I really haven't opened my Bible in months. Bless you. The bad news is that all of us drift. None of us, including me, are immune to drifting. But there is good news. The good news is the Bible addressed spiritual drift and how we avoid it. In fact, I want to suggest to you as thoughtful listeners and readers of the text that there is a New Testament book whose main purpose is to keep us from drifting. It is the New Testament book of Hebrews. And if you have your Bible, I'd like you to open it. I'd love to hear pages of its paper or electronic, and let's enter back into this marvelous book. Last week, Pastor Andrew opened this series, examining chapter one verses one through four. And this section of Scripture sets the trajectory of the entire book and focuses on who Jesus is and what he has done and how we are to focus on the true and better Jesus as the final word for our lives. So now as we enter back into this book today, let's keep in mind some of the terrain of this book because we are going to be spending, I think, some glorious weeks in this exploration together. I hope you'll engage in a book that is truly extraordinary and incredibly relevant for you and me. As we enter into this literature, this book, let's remember that the author is anonymous. There's no name of the author, and that is intentional. Let's also keep in our minds that this author has a deep understanding of the Old Testament text, Scripture. But not only that, this author has a sophisticated use of the Greek language. He has an extraordinary capacity here. He also has a rhetorical literary flair. And what is amazing to bring all that together, he has a pastor's caring heart. And as we begin to understand this flow, we'll understand that this book was most likely a sermon given in the first century to a church. The sermon was so transforming, so dynamic, that it began to circulate through the churches. And you'll notice at the end when we get there, it sounds kind of like a letter, but primarily it's genre, or genre is a sermon. So what we are going to uncover this morning and all through our exploration is the cohesiveness of the logic of his thoughts. But not only that, loving warnings that are sprinkled throughout the book, in fact, there are five of them, and sprinkled through are words of encouragement. His primary audience, by the structure of his language, his use of language, his vocabulary, his focus, are Jewish converts to Jesus in the first century. So after affirming chapter 1, in the core teaching of the gospel, in other words, of who Jesus is and what he has done for this broken world, the author of Hebrew now turns his attention in chapter 2 to the peril of spiritual drifting from the gospel. We might call it the peril of gospel drift. And as sort of scaffolding for our minds and the structure of our conversation this morning, our thoughts are arranged around two questions. If you're taking notes or thinking through with me, these are the two questions we'd like to explore. First is, what is gospel drift, and why is it so perilous? Why is gospel drift so perilous? And secondly, how do we avoid gospel drift? Look at me at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It is arguably said, and I think scholarly right, that this verse is the trajectory of the whole book. What we have here is the urgency of a warning, and we will see the subtlety of the problem and what's so serious at stake about it. First, the urgency of warning. You will notice, and I want you to keep track as we go through the book of these warning sections. Again, there are five of them. We're going to explore these. You're going to see this theme of warning emerge throughout our whole series. But the first warning in chapter 2 is unique in that it is it has the highest volume of urgency. In other words, as you look at your English text, this phrase, we must pay closer attention, is the literary equivalent in the Greek language of a danger sign that is flashing. Much like you would encounter on a steep mountain road when it says, slow down, steep curve ahead. Or if... You hang out at a junkyard. You drive up to a junkyard and there's this big sign right at the gate. Every junkyard has it. If you've been at a junkyard lately, if not it's a cultural experience. <laughs> <laughs> Danger. Beware. Junkyard dog. That's the idea. I ran into a no trespassing sign in rural Kansas a while ago. Picture with me driving on a dirt road, it's rather rural. A long driveway of a large farm, and there's right by the driveway, not welcome, no trespassing. And then on the other side, it says, survivors will be prosecuted. <laughs> that gets your attention. This is what we have in the first most urgent warning of the book. Liz and I, when we uh, did graduate study in Israel, had many memorable experiences. One of the craziest ones was Babadah, which is uh, the ancient site of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we were a part of an academic study in archaeology. And uh, we uh, arrived at this site in an old beat-up bus, this academic bus. You got it? Hot as blazes. And we get off the site, which is right on the border of Israel and Jordan, near the Dead Sea. We walk out of the bus and immediately in front of us are all these signs, danger, landmines. And our guide said, we are now, this tell, this archeology span dig is surrounded by landmines. Well, when you run into a danger sign like that, you pay attention where you stand and where you step and you stay in the path. And you know what? We all watched each other too. This is the kind of danger the writer of Hebrews has in mind. But the difference from a landmine danger and the danger he's going to describe of gospel drift is a more subtle, insidious danger. He wants us to pay very close attention because danger lurks. And notice in the text the repetition of the pronoun we. This is a collective reality. And the danger of gospel drift is not only individual, it's collective. Now, notice the subtlety of the problem. This is anchored in this little phrase, lest we drift away from it. The gospel message we have heard is the context. Now, what's fascinating fascinating here, remember I alluded to the fact that the Hebrew writer is very uh, astute in his understanding of classical Greek. He scans classical Greek history, and he puts a classical Greek word in the text. It's the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament, and it's the word translated drift away. As you trace this word, it is tied to a nautical metaphor of boats in the early classical Greek period of drifting, unanchored, to hit the shore and be shipwrecked or to be lost at sea. So shipwreck and lost at sea are woven into this metaphor. Also, if you are an astute observer of the text, you notice that the grammatical structure of this phrase is placed in a passive sense. We use this all the time, right? Active is like, he hit the ball. Passive sense is the ball hit him. Notice, drifting is not something we do. It is something done to us. Picture in this cold winter. Oceans of fun. You want to go back to oceans of fun? Would that be fun right now? A hot day, and you uh, go down, you know, that lazy river. You ever done that thing? It's that lazy river ride. You just kind of float down with the current. That's the picture. Without a firm anchor, we float on the currents of culture and the wind of the day, wherever they take us, like a bobber on the waves. The writer wants us to grasp something. There is grave danger in a ship adrift. There's also great danger in a person adrift. One who is untethered, unanchored to Christ and to the gospel. It is always subtle. It is incremental. It is almost indiscernible. And the longer you and I drift, the further off course we and the more perilous end we face. Notice the emphasis on the peril in verses two through four. The writer says this. There's something very serious at stake. He wants us to listen. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, this is intense language. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And you go, Wow, Tom, there's a lot packed in there. There is. So I want to encourage you in your reading and your study to look carefully at every word and see the richness. Of what is there. Let me highlight three observations that perhaps can be signposts of your own study and navigation. First, there is a strong emphasis on angels, and that might be surprising to us. You know, we think of angels as like angels in the outfield, or Lucifer, or Legion, or that movie series or TV series, Touched by an Angel, and there's all kinds of dynamics that go through our mind. But what is the author doing? Does he have a fixation with angels in the first century? What he is doing is he is arguing persuasively, logically, cohesively, coherently from the lesser to the greater. He's saying angels were created by God and angels by their very, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word of angel means messenger. The primary placement within the created order is to reveal God's message to the world. And so what he's saying is that the angels gave revelation, the law at Sinai, remember at Advent we talked about. Gabriel giving the message to Mary. What his point is, is angels are created as messengers. They give the message God gives them. But we have Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1, who is now speaking to us. He is greater. He is the creator. His message is greater. It's more compelling. We must not neglect it. He goes from lesser to greater in his logic. Jesus' message carries greater weight. But secondly, notice the Trinitarian footprint here. It's all over if you look. And I want us to keep that in mind as we walk through Hebrews. You'll notice Jesus the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has authenticated Jesus' message when he was incarnated on this earth through miraculous signs, wonders, and miracles. We read about many of them, not only in the Gospels, but in the book of Acts. Third we observe the severe consequences of gospel drift. The danger, notice the parallel in the antiphonal refrain of the structure of drifting and neglect, you see it. Verses 2 through 4 are warning signs, like landmines. Judgment and ruin await those who drift from the gospel of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. Yale theologian Mirzlap Volf has a wonderful book called Exclusion and Embrace. This is what he writes. God will judge, not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. Because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Don Carson, who is a friend of Christ's community and I think the finest New Testament scholar today, Don Carson has a book called The Love of God and he hits it out of the park here and it's a little longer of a quote than I normally do but his words are much better said than I could ever craft them. So listen carefully to his brilliant observation. He says this. One of the most striking evidences of sinful human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. In other words, it takes thought Resolve, energy, and effort to bring about reform. In the grace of God, sometimes human beings display such virtues. Where such virtues are absent, the drift is invariably toward compromise, comfort, indiscipline, sliding disobedience, and decay that advances sometimes at a crawl and sometimes at a gallop across generations. Don continues. People do not drift toward holiness. Apart, notice this wonderful phrase from grace driven effort. People do not gravitate toward godliness, to prayer, to obedience to scripture, to faith, to delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom we drift toward superstition a better word today is mystery we drift toward mystery and call it faith we cherish the indiscipline of lost self control and call it relaxation we slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism we slide toward godliness or godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated Friends, spiritual drift, gospel drift is the most dangerous threat to your life and to the church. But how do we drift? There's much I could say here, but let me highlight four areas where I see it common in my life and in those around me, in Christian organizations, and in individuals' lives. We drift intellectually, emotionally, morally, and culturally. First, intellectually. Intellectual drift. Often, intellectual drift begins with honest Doubt. Honest doubt, of course, is a good thing. It can lead to a deepening of faith, deeper intellectual curiosity, but it can also lead to the abandoning of faith or the rejection of the gospel. We were created to love God fully with our minds, to engage in intellectual reflection as an act of worship. But what often happens is the barnacles of pride begin to set in. And suddenly, we are too smart. We have too many degrees. We are too enlightened to fully believe the Bible and the gospel. We begin to drift on the waves of the most current, faddish, philosophical, sophistication, political correctness, and cultural accommodation. Willful willful disbelief becomes abandonment of faith. We also drift emotionally. I think this is very, very common. Again, emotions are good things. Being made in God's image, we are to be emotional. But emotions can turn on us and lead us to spiritual drift, perhaps like nothing else I know, especially when we feel disappointment with God. We all face difficulties, don't we? Wherever you are in your spiritual life, we all face difficulties in a broken world. We all face disappointments in life. Whatever stage of life, whether you're younger or older, we all face it. It may be the loss of health, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a dream, a broken friendship. It may be unanswered prayer. It may be disappointment with the church. It may be disappointment with family members. You may be up to your neck in it right now. Or just the disappointing slow daily grind of a difficult job or a difficult study at school. I was with someone recently who's in the retirement phase. We want to call it that. And he looked at me and said, because I was asking him how his spiritual life was he says, "Tom, I'm so bored." And he said, "My boredom is leading me to drift from Christ. When disappointment leads us to a chronic kind of bitterness, we drift away. It's like a small sliver in your finger. You ever had that? Just festers into self-absorption, self-pity, disillusionment, cynicism, and a critical spirit. Often anointed with unmet expectations, and we drift, we drift, we drift. Third is moral drift. At the heart of moral drift is willful disobedience to the clear teaching of Holy Scripture. Moral drift in our lives is usually propelled by idols of our heart. Those things that are good things God created that become ultimate things instead of God. They may be power over others. They may be sex outside of the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. They may be money. They may be appearance or approval of others. All these can slowly untether us from the gospel and set our lives adrift. We first rationalize our disobedience to God an materialistic greed, or our lack of 1st fruit giving, or we convince ourselves that sex is okay outside of the covenant of marriage in a man and a woman. We find a likable teacher or pastor or professor who will distort it for us, present to us a sophisticated-sounding theological mirage to whitewash our sin. Jesus describes the drifting human heart in moral drift. In John three nineteen, he knocks it out of the park as Jesus always does. He says, "For men, you say, people love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil." See, disobedience to the clear, compelling teaching of the holy Scripture inevitably lead us to drift. However, well rationalized, hidden, we're adrift. Fourth is cultural drift. I believe we often underestimate the strong gravitational pull of cultural conformity rather than gospel discernment. See, the gospel speaks into every nook and cranny of our lives and our world. Therefore, it continually interfaces and sometimes, yes, collides with our culture. With peer pressure at school, at work, what we read, what we hear, what we see in the media and our social networks. The power of conforming to current cultural modes of thinking of fitting in, sets us adrift from the gospel. Trying to be cool, to be hip, it's not just something adolescents deal with. It is something all of us struggle with. See, wanting to be liked is not necessarily a bad thing. But when we want to be liked or approved or hip or cool or intellectually smart, rather than following Jesus first, it is a perilous thing. I'll never forget a greatest generation pastor in my ordination council looked across the table and said to me, in my generation, it's your generation. The problem with your generation is you'd like to be like too much. I don't think it's just my boomer generation. I think all of us struggle with that. Now, separation from culture, of course, is not the answer. Please don't mishear me. Wise discernment is the answer. As a follower of Jesus, we are all called to be in touch with our culture, but not in tune with it. For Jesus calls us to be a faithful presence for him in the gospel, in our home, our school, in our workplaces, and in the public square. And Many times this means we are going against the prevailing winds of our culture. We are called to be respectful and gracious to everyone who disagrees with us, even if they are hostile to us but our faith convictions may very well lead to ridicule, rejection, and outright persecution simply because we are Christians. Perilous cultural conformity is not only dangerous for individuals, it is very dangerous for Christian organizations and churches who slowly, insidiously become untethered to the gospel and the sound doctrine, who begin to drift away under the guise of cultural relevance, overcorrection of the past, Novel ways of theological thinking, new ways of Bible interpretation and pragmatic success rather than being faithful to the gospel delivered to us once and for all, the scripture teaches. I know of, I don't know how to say this. I know of no greater peril. The Christian parachurch organizations and local churches than gospel drift today. So how do we avoid it? Hebrews chapter 2 helps us here. It causes us to look back to chapter 1. You'll notice the key logical word, therefore. It says, look back to chapter 1 as the first key to avoid drift, and that is to the true and better Jesus. Get your eyes on him. Stay tightly tethered to him, to the gospel, and to the holy scriptures. Chapter 1, 1 through 4, we see who Jesus is and what he has done. This has to be our north, cor- our north compass setting the gospel. In verses 5 through 14, the writer of Hebrews weaves together brilliantly seven Old Testament texts. And let me just say about that, they're primarily in the Psalms, and they emphasize Jesus' kingly role. We're going to see his kingly role, his perf- prophetic role, his priestly role unraveled beautifully, unwrapped in Hebrews. But here his focus is on King Jesus, and he connects Psalm 2:7 with Second Samuel 7 where we hear the Davidic king, David, was given a promise that one day a king, a Messiah king who would be eternal, would come through his lineage. And if you want to impress your friends at school or at work, or your family, you write home to them, or you email them, or you text them to me. I learned about typology today, literary typology. Because Hebrews is woven through this with typology. Typology simply means this. It's a literary form that shows how one text points ultimately to a future text. So the writer is bringing Old Testament and New Testament together to focus on Jesus. That Jesus is what the whole story is about. Jesus is the true and better king. He is the prophet and priest. And what he is saying to us is we must stay firmly tethered to him. And the antiphonal metaphor in Hebrews that connects it together is 2, one and 6.19. And in 619, this is what he says. He says, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that keeps us from drifting. Drift and anchor centered in the gospel and in Jesus. And this is the message that comes screaming out at us with love and sobriety. It is this. If we are not firmly anchored, we are drifting. If we are not firmly anchored to Jesus, the gospel, the authority of Scripture, we are drifting from it. There's no neutral space. So the question for all of us as we enter this amazing book is, are you adrift or are you anchored? I want to just challenge you if you're younger here, elementary, high school, college, young adult, Remember I said, the longer you drift, the farther you go. So when you are younger, get your north compass settings right. On Jesus Christ, the gospel, the authority of scripture, and on sound doctrine, Lock in to the north compass setting, or you will begin to drift. And the longer you drift, the further you are lost. Now's the time to weigh anchor. And if you are adrift this morning, it's never too late to change course. This is the glory of the gospel and repentance and faith. Amen? So let me raise three questions we're going to come to throughout this series over and over again. And that is, are you firmly anchored to Christ? Is your life immersed in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ and following him? Are you anchored to him? Hebrews chapter 12, 2 will tell us we are to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's it. Secondly, are you firmly anchored to Scripture, to the Holy Scriptures, the 66 books of the Christian canon? Are you letting the Bible not only touch your life, are you letting it read you? The Bible is the only book that you read and it reads you. And in Hebrews chapter 4, 12, we'll see how the Holy Spirit takes the Scripture and puts it in front of us so we can really see who we are and the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. Third is, are we firmly anchored to others? One of the greatest safeguards from gospel drift is to stay close to each other in local church community. And the, Hebrew writers will con- the writer of Hebrews will continue to bring this out later. Hebrews chapter 10, don't forsake assembling together. Stay tethered. Stay tethered together or you'll drift. That's the picture. And one of the great ways we have, and we're going to emphasize more as a community group, get involved in a community group if you're not. Try one. Stay tethered. So how do we avoid gospel drift? This book is going to help us avoid the peril and experience the joy of intimacy with Christ in a deeper way. We avoid gospel drift by being tethered to Jesus, to the Holy Scriptures, and to local church community. Recently, I was reminded of gospel drift in my own family of origin. Harriet Beecher Stowe is the person in my genealogical closet that our family is most proud of. Yes, we have skeletons too, believe me. The Harriet Beecher Stowe was an extraordinary light, extraordinarily bright and courageous woman. And one time historians say she was probably, arguably, the most influential person in America. And when she met President Lincoln, the first thing he said to her when he looked at her and looked down at her because he was tall and she was short, he said, so you're the little woman who started the big war. Much is known about Harriet Beecher Stowe's social activism against slavery and the horrific nature of it. But not much has been written about her spiritual life until recently, and I was delighted. It's just out. A church historian by the name of Nancy Coster wrote this book, Harriet Beecher Stowe, A Spiritual Life. And I have to tell you, when I read it, because I have lots of relatives that are tied to the Beechers and Stowe's, and my mom's name was Stowe, and I'm reading it just like I'm reading my history. But I wasn't, I just didn't expect what I found. Harriet Beecher Stowe, under Lyman Beecher, one of the most godly pastors of New England, embraced Christ, embraced the gospel, was firmly tethered to the scriptures when she was younger. And as you read about her life in her later years, She becomes untethered. So adrift that Harriet Beecher Stowe, which I never heard before, I never understood before, she embraced occultic spiritualism to the point of regularly meeting with a medium for a seance to have contact with her son who had died. And can you imagine the tremendous heartache she felt? Now, I share this not in any way to undermine the amazing woman Harriet Beecher Stowe was nor am I casting judgment on her spiritual state or eternal destiny. Do not mishear me. But as I have read this book and walked more closely in her spiritual life, I found myself reflecting on the state of my own faith. And the question I kept thinking is am I firmly anchored to Christ, to the Holy Scriptures, to the gospel, or am I drifting? Because the longer one drifts, the further one goes, it often takes others with it. Perhaps as a boy, my boating instructor said something more profound than he ever realized that has been a part of my soul. A boat adrift is a boat heading for danger. People like you and me are like that too. Let's pray. Father, all of us, are fragile and weak. We are susceptible to the pied pipers of the new and the fad. Lord, keep us individually and collectively as a church from drifting from the glorious truths of the gospel from our Lord Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, every word. We pray that in Jesus' name.